0: But the idea of Jesus as word that becomes became a kind of way to think through that. Um, If Jesus is the guarantor of all meaning in the universe, and Jesus is a becomer, well then meanings do too. Um, And if we get to work with God shoulder to shoulder um, in that, then the ways that we get to participate in that becoming of the word is through that reading.
1: Welcome to The Habit Podcast. Conversations with Writers About Writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Dr. Tiffany Eberly Kreiner is Associate Professor of English at Wheaton College in Illinois. She's also a farmer. Her new collection of essays is In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm. In it, Dr. Kreiner connects culture, ecology, faith, and literature, and invites readers to cultivate fruitful conversations between literature and the environments in which they live. Tiffany Everly kreiner I'm so glad to have you on the Habit Podcast. Thanks for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So we're speaking the week before the release of your new book, In Thought, Word, and Deed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm.
0: Almost oh, In Thought, Word, and Seed.
1: Oh, of course, I'm, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that correction, In Thought, Word, and Seed, because this is a book, among many other things, it is about farming. Um. How do you when when people when you describe this book in 90 seconds or less, what do you how do you describe it?
0: Oh, well, I, I think I describe it as trying to figure out how all the vocations in my life work together. So I am a literature professor. I'm a deeply committed follower of Jesus, and I'm a farmer. Mm -hmm. And those things seem to have a relationship to one another. And um, I usually try to figure out things by writing. And Mm -hmm. so this book is trying to figure out what those relationships are. What happens if you plant books on a farm? Does Uh the algae come out? Um, (laughs) Yeah. I I think, yes.
1: Um, Tell me about your choice of the word reckoning or reckonings in your subtitle.
0: Yeah, uh, that wa- I'm glad to say that that was my choice. Most um, most of the title was a, a gift from the team, the publishing uh-huh. team, and the draft title was something arcane like "field, comma, word" um, or something <laughs> like that. You know, just you know, I had to do something. So, yeah. uh, uh, but when they said. Um, in Thought, Word, and Seed, the idea of reckoning is a kind of betweenness, right? On the one hand, it's thinking, right? I reckon, I think so. Uh, But a reckoning is also a kind of judgment or a a sort of uh, laying out of how it is, right? The accounts, they become clear. And uh, I think a lot of the book is both thinking and uh, trying to figure out the nature of responsibility and the accounts that come to light when one is sort of living and working close to the land.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you live, you live in the house, a house built by a famous bee- beekeeper.
0: That's right. That's right. <laughs>
1: <You> <laughs> we know didn't know there were famous, bee- I didn't know there were famous beekeepers till I read your, uh, your book.
0: Well, so in the late 19th and early 20th century, he was one of the biggest producers of Honey on the Continent, and he became a kind of tinkerer with the processes, you know, hive innovations and all that kind of material. And so when he died, uh, they dedicated a library to him at the University of Wisconsin, and the story goes that you know, the American Beekeepers Association kind of caravan down to have a special memorial lunch. And there's a plaque in the church, the Presbyterian church um, that refers to his service to the church and to to beekeeping. And so kind of a hero. I, when I heard about that, I was pretty sure I wanted that piece of land, you know, like that's too good to pass up.
1: Yeah. I'm sure you know that honeybees aren't native to North America.
0: Well, and yet here they are helping us so completely, right? right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it is amazing to to think that that. I mean, I guess there are plenty of our other pollinators who took care of business around here, but um, it is remarkable to think that that this species that's so important to us isn't native. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, of course, I guess neither are cows, uh, for that matter, hogs,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but. We're used to domesticated animals not being native. It's this this wild animal that's so important.
0: You know, that's comforting in a way, too, to think about what happens when we are transplanted, right? I'm a, yeah. I'm a northern New Yorker, upstate yeah. New York rural uh, country, so it's a lot in common with where we are now.
1: Yeah. Um, Which is the- northern Illinois.
0: Yes, Northern Illinois. And the vicissitudes of life, you know, uh, and the providence of the Almighty have led us here. And I feel sometimes, you know, when you enter into a small town, is it okay that you do? Not from around here, you know, mm-hmm. um, and feeling like one doesn't want to be an invader um, mm-hmm. or a, a species that doesn't fit or doesn't help. And the idea of the honeybees generosity i guess um in spaces like this and the way that we've kind of grown together people and bees, um makes me have a little hope that <laughs> transplants can <laughs> find soil uh that yeah. is accustomed to, yeah.
1: to that's good. um i love the way it, it it's it's thomas gardner who wrote your the forward to your to your book right yeah. um His description of when he says Kreiner's work roots itself in a specific place and attempts to lift its particulars up into meaning and vision and praise. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And your farm is called Root and Sky Mm
0: -hmm. Farm.
1: And as Thomas Gardner pointed out, you know, it's both earthbound and reaching upward, you know, root and sky. Um, And I love that as a way of thinking about what you're doing on that piece of property, but also what you're doing in your in your work. Mm-hmm. Your writing work, I should say, your other work.
0: that's right. that's right. Um, the title of our farm, the name of our farm, comes from a poetry play, a, a play in verse by Christopher Fry. Um, and the lines are so beautiful that we we did the play in college. I was uh, I went to Messiah College and we did the play, "The Boy with a Cart." Uh, during my time there. And the chorus that opens the play speaks these words as the farmers of southern England. And they say, with God, we work shoulder to shoulder, God providing, we dividing, sowing and pruning, not knowing yet, but sometimes discerning. Discern mm. a little at spring when the bud with pointing finger shows the hand of God at the root with stretching mm. finger points the mood in the sky sky and root in mm. joint action and that those lines have stuck with me through mm. 20 some years you know uh yeah. since that time and have I think really defined a way of being a person in the world that mm. I have taken as a writer right um that okay what what would it mean to write with Jesus? What would it mean to write um with the Lord? Um, but also it becomes, of course, very physical and very real when you're actually digging with the Lord you know, <laughs> in, in yeah. those
1: well, I, I love the 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 truth that um, the the results of agricultural horticulture, They require your efforts, but they don't come about because of your efforts, right? It's it's not going to happen if you don't do something. But the truth is, it's still a gift. Uh, Oh, my
0: gosh. Never more evident than when you kind of haul a watermelon in from the field, which I've been doing lately. And you're thinking to yourself, like, the seed that's just like this big and the watermelon, you can only take one at a time because they're so big. And you think, like, thank you, right? Like, it's all you can take for the way that that works. Yeah. However much labor you put into it, it still feels shocking.
1: You, only God can make a watermelon.
0: Right? <laughs> it is true.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you uh, you mentioned Virgil's Georgics. Um, and I, I want to hear more about Virgil, Vir, Virgil's Georgics, which you say are about the struggle for human accomplishment in the difficult circumstances of the way things are. Pretty good summary of farming and writing. Mm -mm -mm. Um, and probably not all of our listeners are familiar with Virgil's Georgics, so why don't you give us a quick summary of of what that is, and just a quick one.
0: Sure, sure. Well, (laughs) I'm I'm in some ways grateful to say I wasn't either. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not classically educated. You know, um, the fancy books come late in my life, Mm -hmm. Um, and I came to Virgil's Georgics when I needed help, as a farmer um yeah. and, you know yes i went to youtube also but um <laughs> but uh, it's a set of poems kind of about agriculture written in, in the ancient world and um i i wanted to connect with traditions of people who had tried to make meaning. And it just so happened that I came across this poet and translator, David Ferry, mm-hmm. um whose work Bewilderment, um, a contemporary work of poems, uh, contains some of his translations. And so I actually just started following his work, being so mm-hmm. moved by it um, and wanting uh, to read more. So I you know, read his Aeneid and, and just really moved by it. And so when we became farmers, I thought, oh, man, I think he did the Georgics, too. I've heard mm. a little bit a little bit about this, you know. And so yeah. I came to it in some ways as a farming handbook. Uh-huh. Um, and this was writing this piece or trying to figure out in those first years how to be a farmer. This was on my bedside to try to figure out things a little bit to see. And what I love about Ferry's translation, too, is the way you know he just he, he stretches out the lines a little bit in ways that are, i think are really helpful but i appreciate how much he feels the struggle to find meaning in the world to deal with change to deal with weather and all that you know existence wow. of life uh and i think just as a translator his own sensitivity to the emotion in the work has made it so powerful um mm. yeah so in some ways you know, different books come into our lives at different times, and I really needed this one. Yeah. At time. And, yeah.
1: And, yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of difficult circumstances of the way things are, let's talk about the circumstances under which you wrote this book. These these five essays. Yeah. Um. What? So it's COVID lockdown. Mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter summer, in which you were um, involved, just to some degree, in in some some demonstrations and protests in a, in a town that you describe as a is it fair to say a sundown town right
0: it was yeah uh, back in the day it was a sundown town um and so you know that especially chapter 2 was written uh during that that summer during that time and kind of reflecting um on the difficulties of safety or the questions of safety, um, as they cross from, um, sort of physical health into racial health of our nation. Um, yeah. So all of those things kind of came together in that, in that second essay.
1: Um, but also in the midst of that summer, when your husband, uh, was sick and, and stayed sick, you had a lot of physical labor there in the, in the woods that you had to to do, um, and that I'd, I'd love to hear you say more about that. You know, just just mm-hmm. your. You've already said this is a book about you sorting out various vocations, mm-hmm. and you have a vocation as a farmer and a vocation as a writer, and those two don't always make it easy to.
0: Yeah. 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 Do. Well, absolutely, and one of the vocations that is an issue here too is as a married person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, one's calling to one's spouse to whom one has committed love faithfulness through life uh, so yeah my husband got long covid one summer then the next summer he had a knee surgery mm-hmm. and then the next summer after that he had another knee surgery and so three summers in wow. a row and it, of course you know that sort of academic schedule privileges summer as a big writing time mm-hmm. um, and the fall of 2020 also um i had a sabbatical set up so i was you know getting all ready to do this kind of intensive work super excited about it um and then um these sort of diseases and 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 um and surgeries came up and just kind of interrupted my plan or my schedule for this focused intense work and i think one of the things i had to sort out was um how can i live faithfully as a spouse and as a writer who also has responsibilities, right I have to write the, in some ways I have to write this book, right I have to I have to get on with my research. I have to get on with my my uh, my job, right I'm uh-huh. supposed to do this thing right uh, and yet the call of the animals themselves was very strong, right wow. my my husband is incapacitated. the animals need you right now. Mm-hmm. so, they're giving birth. They're doing all these things. You're right. They're they're, um, they're needing to be moved, right? That's the yeah. big thing. They need to be moved um, as they rotationally graze through the land, and so that need to feed them or to to bring them to spaces where they they feed themselves uh, mm-hmm. was really really pressing. And so I think I I remember this one day in the field <laughs> where I was just i was crying i just didn't want to do it you know what i mean like I, it's so hot i'm moving these things you know and i just remember this moment where i don't know i don't want to be too spooky or anything but i felt this the presence of the lord just saying this is this is taking up your cross right now like mm-hmm. and it's it's not how you imagined it to be mm-hmm. a marker in some important way or something <laughs> like that sort of heroic, you know, are you a believer? You know, or whatever. <laughs> it's just kind of like this, this is it. This is moving sheep is how you are laying down your life right now. And um I would like to say that thus my attitude shifted and thus I was, you know, this is the sort of flower of virtue. <laughs> good attitude. And it didn't really always happen uh as through through that long, difficult time. But I'm sure that that work was needful and i'm sure that at that moment the way that writing came as a as a mercy into mm-hmm. that time, not as a um the execution of a grand vision or something mm-hmm. like that right like uh yeah. you know maybe i had an idea for the book and you know some invitations came and i'm like oh i could maybe make something but it didn't happen like and no i will you know <laughs> forward this uh plan that i've had since the beginning um these snippets moments came um invitations came that helped me toward a deadline or whatever um, and it felt more and more like i was experiencing the outpouring of mercy i'm wondering what it all means i feel like a, i'm supposed to be someone who writes i'm supposed to be someone who cares for these animals who cares for this man um and so how does it all work oh lord Um, And then the the essays here are truly essays. Like they're trying, they're trying Mm -hmm. to figure that out. And their form so fragmented, so many of them, right? So so piecemeal, especially the last one. And that's exactly how it came through, right? Um, In these small bits, in these small moments where um, mercy was poured upon me in difficulty.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you see a subtitle like, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm, and, and <clears throat> I appreciated the reminder that, you know, being connected to the land and also being a writer, um, you know, Henry David Thoreau gave us kind of a one vision of how that might work which is the ability to stare at the lake for many, many hours. And and you mentioned that you, I can't, now, now I don't remember if it was in the same while you were trying to, if it was the same summer or not, but that you were in a reading group with some students and and somebody said, how, how does she put it? Um, you know, she asked, can you really justify those hours of, of staring at the lake? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, if, it's good work if you can get it right. And in, in yeah. your case, being connected to the land meant, spending a lot of time with with loppers lopping off yeah honeysuckle-
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's true and in some ways then it becomes uh, a great p- privilege right though the work itself is great work if you can get it I happily had exigency to help <laughs> like <laughs> I mean like do, do that devotion because I mean I don't know if this comes through in the book at all but um all the tasks that I do for the farm, um, even though sometimes I don't want to do them, I love them. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, all the thing, I mean, maybe, maybe not putting down.
1: Some of the is- some of the, yeah, some <laughs> the episodes about the cutting down the honeysuckle to move the sheep. It was not coming through that you were really.
0: Oh, right, 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 right. Totally. Um uh, there, but we feel good when we're outside. We feel yeah. good when we move our bodies. It helps us in our sadness to be in those spaces. It feels like the forest takes care of you. Yeah. And so there's this kind of like. I can regularly and honestly say it's as good as people imagine to live this way, um, even it, through the difficulty, yeah. uh, or whatever. So, um, the hard work in a Therovian sense or whatever becomes the time when I can do the thinking, even though he mm-hmm. retreats from his bean field or whatever, you know, uh, from that and wants to work less so that he yeah. can contemplate. Good for him. Good, 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 good. But <laughs> for someone like me, for whom like working is the, is the thing or whatever, um, to have to do this work had these unexpected benefits of being able to sort of know in your body what it means um, wh- before you know how to say it in sentences.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. I mean, yeah. Uh, I was talking uh, about this with somebody, probably probably a podcast I was recording in the, this week, about the idea that the work of the writer is, it doesn't start with finding words. Mm-hmm. That's the last step. Yep. I mean, not always, yeah. but but it's we think of writing. You know, the work of the writer is putting together sentences. Well, you're putting together sentences to put into words experience, understanding. You know, the, these things that that are perhaps preverbal. I mm-hmm. may be overstating the case, call it preverbal, but but.
0: Well, I mean, so many times the experience. um of working or the experience of looking became the prompt for the particular essay right so in Mm -hmm. the last chapter of my book for example waddle um i don't even know why i started it right like (laughs) i built a fence to in order to make that essay um and so we were we had it had just been announced that we were changing everything for the for the semester. We're going to have a two week spring break. We would completely go online, and I was seeding frost seeding in the pasture when I heard the news that that was happening, and then suddenly the whole shape of the next months changed, mm-hmm. and so suddenly. It was, I think it was that even that week while I was like, I'm listening into a faculty meeting and cutting <laughs> down branches and being like, just make a fence and, uh, and kind of think about some of the things uh, that I had been asked to think about holiness, namely uh, in an invitation for an essay. And so that literally was the route to the thinking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Just keep building, keep building, and then it comes out or something, yeah. Yeah, um, You collect yeah, yeah. and arrange and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Let, let me ask you about a, a a suggestion you make in your book um, that is not the meaning of it is not self-evident. So maybe you can sort of talk me through it. OK. You suggest that where books are cultivated might matter, that it might make a difference whether a book is cultivated in one place rather than another. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. What what do you what do you mean by that? Well, you know, I think your answer is, yes, it matters. Yeah.
0: yeah where yeah, it was yeah. Cultivated. Sure. So uh, maybe the easiest way to talk about this is um, using a kind of metaphor of different groups of people. So if you read a book in a college classroom, is it different than reading it in your dorm later because you wanted to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you read a book when you're 20, is it different when you read it when you're 40? Heck yes. Right. Um, especially- what's a book that you experience
1: that with? What, what's a book that you...
0: Oh, yeah. So Moby Dick, for sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, made for middle age, made for the yeah. hard time. Like, just yes. Yeah. Um, so, me, Walker
1: Percy's mo- movie goer, I, which I read at 20. I was like, yeah, that's that's fine. I like it fine. But then I read it when I was 40. I was like, oh, this is a book for people my age, not I for people so <laughs> I, you know, the age I was was when I first read it.
0: Totally. Uh, yeah. So um, so if if a person can understand that. Right. Which all of us can right? Th- those yeah. differences where you know with whom you read it or at different times when you read it um i think that it makes sense to read a book um in a small town versus in a big city Hmm. to um read a book on a particular piece of land when you're thinking about that piece of land the meanings are are a little different like i certainly found that to be the case when i was you know reading it uh, say Charles Chestnut in a college classroom with my students and then suddenly became a farmer in this yeah. way that kind of interacted with the themes It's like oh yeah. I've been wrong about that story so hard and I I didn't even know you know uh, and so it sort of transforms because of the the work I was doing in that that space of land yeah. and you know there there's so many books coming out. I, one of my students out in the lobby just now, is reading a book called Frankenstein in Baghdad, reading Lolita in Tehran, right? Like uh, these yeah. spaces where you're kind of cultivating books in um, po- certain political environments, um, uh, and, and I would suggest certain natural environments too. Um, mm-hmm. Why do people wanna read Thoreau near Thoreauvian spots? Why yeah. do they wanna, you know, or think about it near a lake, you know, um, yeah. wanna, wanna feel it in a particular way.
1: For some reason I was uh, the first time I read book 2 of Paradise Lost I was in the Okeanosy swamp. Mm-hmm. And I I mean that was 30 something years ago and every time I read that part of the book poem I think about the Okeanosy swamp. Of yeah. course I think about the Okeanosy swamp pretty often anyway but still.
0: I mean yeah, yeah. yeah. Well you know it's funny because I think sometimes people get really stressed out about finding the original intention of a work or the meaning of a work as a kind of stable thing that they mm-hmm. they can like find it and like box that up and give it to somebody for christmas and mm-hmm. um and i think if if people just start to experiment a little bit with ideas like you just said like i always think of the okifunuki swamp when i think of paradise book lost or paradise Lost book 2 i mean nobody else does that yeah right? that's right but but you're seeing this little tiny thing about the text that maybe somebody else isn't seeing some little phrase mm-hmm. and it's inflecting, it's granting a meaning to Milton's text that he couldn't possibly have meant. <laughs> yeah. But like it's not it like it's not there. The language is there. It's evoking yeah. certain things in you. And so like it fruit bearing fruit in a yeah. new Piece of ground. And yeah. um, I don't feel even remotely threatened by the idea that books can bear different, new and different fruit. Um, I don't think it's opposite meanings or anything like that. So I'm not saying, you know, it, it's horrifically different in some way from an intention, but it seems organic, natural to be like, yeah, when I read this book with, or when I read this scripture with my small group, it had this mm-hmm. special sort of moment because we were all going through that hard time together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
1: no. beautiful. Yes, please. No. Well, this might be a good time to ask you a question I was going to say for later, but since we're on this this subject, you wrote a book, a previous book, um about the idea that like the rest of creation, books have a place, uh, have a future rather in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you say when we read books, we amplify, we preserve, we interpret, and we even judge and forgive those books. And then you say, in doing so, we participate in cultivating their meaning and purpose in the love of the Trinity. so i I think I probably know what you're talking about, but I'd love to hear you say a little more about that the the future that books have in the kingdom of God,
0: totally. Well so the idea came a little bit from the opening of the book of John in scripture right and the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god that um that section in english um at least and i th- you know i did some language study, too, but it has this kind of riffing on the idea of being and becoming, being and becoming. Mm -hmm. Um, He became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, He uh, was God, etc. The being and becoming become a way of moving through that text. And the idea that Jesus is the word that is and becomes, um, that Jesus has a future, was thrilling to me through, say, Jurgen Moltmann's theology of hope would be one place um, that I was kind of thinking about the futurity of uh, Jesus. Um, That idea that Jesus, even after his resurrection, has a future uh, Mm -hmm. means that like our faith isn't static, the world isn't static, he is making all things new, right? There's this kind of becoming to Mm -hmm. all of creation. And of course, um, as someone who um, has been a Christian for a long time, I was have been thinking for a long time. How does the work that I do, or how might work that I'm considering doing, take part in a kingdom like that where mm-hmm. um, becoming is the way of it, right? Um, and I grew up like service is the major way that we should go forward, right? Mm-hmm. And so even in grad school, it's like, should I? Should I should I just give this up, up like I I don't know that this is worthwhile. I had these dreams where there was a food pantry and on the shelves the canned goods were poems uh mm. right because it was just food pantry <laughs> professor like how can we justify? It? and of course now I kind of do both but um, <laughs> yeah. but the uh I I needed to think about that like how how might this work? how, how can this crisis be? Reckon, should I just toss it all? Um, but the idea of Jesus as word that becomes became a kind of way to think through that. Um, if Jesus is the guarantor of all meaning in the universe and Jesus is a becoming, um, well, then meanings do too. Um, and if we get to work with God shoulder to shoulder um, in that, then the ways that we get to participate in that becoming of the word is through that reading. And that was a change for me in a way, right? Um, because I grew up as a reader who escaped with reading. Right, um, yeah. I'll just hide away um, in the car after church when my parents yeah. were talking, or when people would come over, I'd kind of you know run away and read. Um, but that's—I don't think that's the central way of it for the kingdom, right? Yeah. Um, that the fruitfulness of meaning in the love of the Trinity means the coming together, where meaning meaning means more together when we talk about it together when we. Mm. Uh, read and so the idea of the future of the word um was just a kind of humble way of thinking well seeds do this people do this mm. reading too right? right like again i think this is the 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 tempering of my martyr instincts right Serve <laughs> <laughs> god my whole life um or something like that yeah. um and well cultivate and keep how about you just do genesis yeah. You know, how do you just do Genesis with these books that that I've given you.
1: Yeah, I love Genesis. it. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, before we run out of time, I want to talk about your owl. Oh, okay. Uh, so great essay. Uh, I think this is the fourth essay in your in in the book. Is uh, largely you know a, a big part of it is an owl, an injured owl that you um, that you encountered and spent some time with, and this. Um, and you talk about the idea that we have all these symbolic um, associations with owls—wisdom and bad omens—and tootsie rolls and tootsie, or tootsie pops rather. And um, and then you encountered an actual owl that was a that was a, a creature, a being, and not just a symbol. He's um, a bird made flesh, you said, which I thought was clever. Um <laughs> a bird made flesh that dwelt that dwelt among you for a few hours at least. Um, but it's also another huge theme in that essay is staring, right? You're staring at the owl, the owl staring back at you. And you you mentioned who is it the scary? Uh, Elaine scary who's who, um, who says that staring is a version of the wish to create um there's some ideas for you to sort of all tie together for us
0: all right (laughs) well in that moment uh of engaging with that owl um it was a bad bad day Mm -hmm. i was frantic about many things being yeah. like so much going on, not getting to the work I want to. There's all this housework, there's all this other stuff. And there's, and this owl comes upon, or, you know, this owl comes down into our woods. My children happen upon it and my husband sort of calls me out. And it's clear that this owl needs care. Another kind of ex- urgency that allows me mm-hmm. to do looking, but the need of the animal at that moment um, made a space for me to do what I ought to do all the time, to look, right, to pay attention, uh, to have that kind of awareness of the presence of God, uh, among us. Right. Um, and I wasn't doing that. I was frantically, um, executive functioning my life, uh, at the time. And I was on my phone and in the work and all those things. And the, interruption of that through the need and brokenness of Mm. the animal itself um and again i didn't really know how to help i I was just waiting for the helpers who knew how to help right Mm -hmm. but i didn't want to lose the animal i didn't want it to wander off um hopping into some place where we couldn't find it and thus you know suffering um presumably dying right it had a broken arm so it couldn't do what it needed to do uh so all that to say um the need of the animal um and my desire to sort of participate in its healing in some small mm-hmm. way made a space where i couldn't do anything else but watch it um yeah. and i'm really grateful for you know it, it's never pleasant at the time to have a need arise that requires you to look really hard at whatever it is right yeah. a diagnosis comes at you um uh Uh, a tragedy comes at you, a a depression comes upon a person, right? Like where it's hard to do anything, right? Uh, All these these exigencies or difficulties that come up. um, And it's like the only thing you can do is watch in order to try to figure out uh, how to go forward. And I feel like then um, the the raw material of making something, making meaning out of anything is seeing the thing that you're going to make meaning of, right? Uh, To see where you are. Um and so I that's how I interpret Scary's line there. Um right. you can't make anything of anything unless you're familiar with the material in some way.
1: And what's actually in front of you
0: exactly. and
1: not its not you know, not stopping at the symbolic and the abstract understanding yeah. of what that thing is supposed to be. Right? Mm-hmm. That owl, it's been, you know, it it wasn't there as as a representative of wisdom. Or as a as an omen of of doom for you. Uh he was there as a as a creature who needed some some care.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not one that I would have asked for, right? Like there are there are great books right now coming out on birding and bird intelligence and all these yeah. communication. So super interesting, but I never would have been there. I yeah. mean, right.
1: Unasked
0: yeah. for mercy.
1: Yeah. Um, Elaine Scarry's line reminds me of uh, something I'm sure you've heard from Planner O'Connor. She says that the writer should never be afraid, uh, ashamed of staring, because everything uh, there's nothing that does not require his attention. She says, yeah. "I think it's so good." And that's you know that's such a, re- a recurring theme in your in your essays is the, the need to pay attention and to, to really be aware of, of what's going on around us. Um, well, this might be a good place for us to. To wrap up, but I want to hear um, you answer the question that I typically answer at the end. Uh, Who are the writers who make you want to write?
0: So when I reflected on this question, because I hear it a lot on your podcast, (sighs) I had a realization that my desire to write in response doesn't usually happen to a writer but rather to a work itself right Interesting. so i i would want to like narrow down a little bit and say um that i feel the urge to make things uh, most often when i come upon these massively um, ambitious difficult works
1: mm-hmm. so
0: for example um uh, like duck's newberry port by lucy elman okay. or uh, Infinite Jest or Brothers Karamazov or even Paradise Lost, which we were talking about earlier. Um the the brazen ambition of trying yeah. something so huge. Dante's inferno, right? Yeah. Um uh the those works have I've regularly wanted to write when I encounter a work of such massive um and I don't I've been thinking ambition isn't the right word because who can achieve such a thing, right? Paradise yeah. Lost doesn't, though it'd be great in any case.
1: I'm going to justify the ways of God to man. <laughs> hey, y'all, watch this. I'm going to justify the ways of God to man.
0: Or Middle March would be another example. Mm-hmm. Moby Dick would be another. And even yeah. in Moby Dick, like, let all I write be a draft of a draft, right? Uh-huh. Um, so don't, it's not the achievement of it, even though the works I'm saying are great works. And I um, I, 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 admit this, right? Like I, am attracted to them, but what ma- the thing that makes me want to write out of them is that they're willing to think of the very biggest, hardest questions of yeah. consciousness itself, of meaning in the world, of a yeah. big story of it all. Right. Like one of the writers who makes me want to write is, is Isaiah. Yeah. Like the biggest possible, most ambitious possible story right there in scripture, um, it feels like it calls out because it's, you know, because it's not possible to justify the ways of God to man, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, no, you know, it's not possible. So, so let's try, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, awesome. I love those books that that um, try to explain everything, like um, you know that uh, Jared Diamond book got uh, guns, something guns and steel, germs it's and like steel. yeah, germs,
0: germs. I think was germs,
1: guns and steel, and. Yeah, I'm going to explain everything about how the whole world works. And, you know, I don't I don't believe these theories like they're 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 oversimplifications. I still I just like the fact that somebody's trying, you know,
0: and it it doesn't hurt that, you know, the works that I've mentioned here. Are also like masterworks of language, right? (laughs) Um, It was it Marilyn Robinson says about Melville, he had a gift, you know, like, yeah, yeah, right, totally. But it's—I don't even think it's that only. Yeah. It's the—it's the try of it, huh? That really gets me going.
1: Yeah. So. I love that answer. It's not what I was looking for. It's not what I was expecting. Sorry. I should say. Yeah, no, no, no. It's—I it's, it, don't mean it's.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally.
1: Uh. All right. Well, Doctor Tiffany Revely Kreiner, I'm so glad that we had this time together. Thank you for being here, and and I hope a lot of people read your book.
0: Thank you very much. I hope you have a good one.
1: This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com donate.